before we read the uh, um, the chapter, um, I want to say a few things. First, this chapter is among the greatest in all of the Bible. Uh, it's it's so rich in in meaning in co- cohesive you know cohesion. Uh, Paul has this beautiful and very logical uh, exposition of the resurrection. Okay, so we're not looking specifically at the historical events right now because we've we've generally seen that. So what we're going to do is look at what Paul says. I've just got to humbly say, I consider myself completely incapable uh, and inadequate to do this. Okay, I, I think if God called me to preach from this chapter for the rest of my life, I couldn't come close to exhausting it in a thousand lifetimes. Okay, so I see the Bible as something like a treasure chest. You know, it's full of rubies, precious stones, diamonds. You, know, you take a ruby and you know you shine in a light and it shine, you know it gleams brighter you know more the more you shine in the light uh, a precious stone is more valuable depending on its usage right but a diamond a diamond can be beautiful just to the naked eye but if you take like a looking glass and you look at it you can see all of its radiance all of its different lights all of its beauty and that's really what chapter 15 is. So it's gleaming with all of these different lights. So what I'm trying to do today is basically try to show you a little bit about one of those. Okay, so I'm going to be, we're going to, I'm going to be really concentrating on my notes today more than I typically do because I want to make sure, first of all, I stay <laughs> with, with, uh, uh, with the original intention of this, uh, this, particular message and how we're going to be looking at it, um, but also um, so that we can hopefully see it at least in its full context of the limited amount that we're going to be looking at it. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. We have many enemies in our life, you know, many adversaries, many, many problems, many struggles in life. You know, we have great relationships too, but we have all these struggles, all these adversaries. The ultimate one, and the one we can't beat, I mean, we have all these adversaries, some of which we can beat, some of which we can take care of. Death is the one enemy we have no power over. Okay? And think about it. Even the anguish, and we've all had, we've all lost people. And, and that affects us in different ways, and it's a terrible enemy. It's a terrible enemy that we can't do anything about. We are utterly powerless to do anything about. Okay? And ultimately, it's our last enemy in that con in that respect right and what we're going to see here though is christ defeating death okay and that's that and but you asked specifically you know spiritually resurrection what we're going to be looking at is so interestingly what the the simpler um uh way if if this whole thing is a myth right and the apostles are just making all this up they could have they should have said christ rose spiritually because you can't prove that remember <laughs> you know it's easy it's 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 the fallacy of equivocation but it's easy because if he rose uh, spiritually there's no way to prove it there's no way to disprove it but they didn't and he didn't he bought he rose bodily okay and that's very important as we go along here 
to recognize, okay? Because we're really going to be looking at the resurrection, not only of his body, but of ours. We, we will be raised with new bodies, okay? Remember, the nature and, and the spirit are supposed to be one, okay? Right now, the nature is corrupted, okay? And the spirit is what um, causes uh, what was ultimately, what was first corrupt into incorruption. And we'll see that as we go along. Okay, let me go, let's go ahead and read the whole chapter and then we'll go back and break it down. Okay, everybody ready? All right. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to, uh, to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in, with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how did some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one to his own, in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to, the, to God the Father, when he puts, all, puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accept, accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive until, uh, until it unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. 
All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of an animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial, terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The, living, uh, the last Adam became a li life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As, we, uh, uh, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as, we've been born, uh, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your glory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. All right. Okay. So, we're going to break these down, you know, verse by verse, taking a couple of verses, and really... Uh, expounding specifically on the resurrection of the body. Okay, I just want you all to recognize that's the point that we're going to be emphasizing here. Um, okay, so verse 1 and 2, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which, and in which you stand by, uh, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The word declare is really to make known. So what he declared, what he made known to these people is, uh, is the narrative regarding the necessity of Christ's resurrection and the historicity of Christ's resurrection. It did happen, and that's the good news of Christ, and that's what he was preaching to these people. Um, and he's saying, though, uh, he says that he preached it, and they received it, and, and it's that in which they stand. They did receive it, but they're only receiving part of it, basically, uh, is what he's going to get into. Uh, he ends with a stark warning, which basically, if you hold fast to that word, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, the, this vanity, the Greek word is ak, which is to be without purpose and without success. So this belief, even though they acquiesce to it, it, if they doubt the resurrection, all of the good news is torn down. So they believed without purpose. It's a, purposeful, it's a purposeless uh, belief. It's a purposeless faith. And uh, what was the other? without success, there's no success. There's no real faith if they doubt the, uh, the resurrection. Um, because if they hold not that word which he preached, they, they have believed in vain, for they have never really believed at all. Um, the specific error regarding their disbelief 
right here isn't immediately known. Uh, we, we see uh, that he talks about specifically the resurrection, but their error specifically about denying the resurrection, we don't know. There were di there are different ways of thinking about that. We've seen the Sadducees uh, who didn't believe in the resurrection, and there were Jews, so it's in the context of Judaism, and they just believe basically life of this on this side of heaven is all there is. You know, on this side, that's all there is. There's no resurrection of the body, okay, kind of a thing. There, there were other ones. There's a, what was called a dualistic philosophy, which has manifested in many ways throughout time. Uh, but, but that's basically saying material things are evil and immaterial things are good. So what they're saying, basically they believe salvation comes through death. You know, because <laughs> once we die, we have, we have uh, shut, you know, we have, we have shed our moral coil and now we are perfect. You know, because the one thing that makes us corrupt, they believe, is our body. Material things. Okay, so I, we don't know necessarily specifically what uh, what they were specifically disbelieving and, and how that idea broke down. Um, but it seems, uh, at least based on what Paul says, I can, I think, I, I, I assume, I think it's safe to assume that it's closer to the Sadducees. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's interesting. Uh, we see in Second uh, Timothy 2, chapter 2, uh, verse 17 and 18, uh, Paul says, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Whether this may have been in view, so this is another one, uh, is undetermined, but they denied a future resurrection of the body. So that's what these people are definitely um, uh, believing, that they deny a future resurrection of the body, regardless. So we have all these different ideas. Um, that they fell into this kind of absurdity after being taught by such a great man of Paul is a tragic, um, is a tragic thing, but one that's continued through the ages. Uh, they looked at the outside of the man, as we'll see, uh, and not the Christ within him. Verses 3 and 4. For, and just so you know, some of, the, some of these portions are going to be more brief than others because I know we're restricted with time. And so some of these, we're just going to wait until the next time we see this chapter, okay? Like I said, if I had all my life, I, I don't think I could do this well. Okay, so for three and four, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, he's saying what he made known to them. Again, it's the same thing as in uh, the first verse, but what he's saying is, I'm, I'm, I'm delivering to you that which I also received. It's not some myth or abstract philosophy I make, made up in a dark corner somewhere. This is something that has been attested. This is something that's been witnessed. This is something that I received. This isn't anything new. It's not my little, you know, theoretical um, thought or anything that I'm giving to you. It's what I received, I gave to you. So, and, and what he's saying, it, well, uh, we'll get to that. Um, uh, additionally, this, this not only points to Paul's preaching, but the, the, the early church's preaching. So, in Romans, uh, well, so basically what, they're saying, what he's getting to, and we'll see, ultimately, if they disbelieve in what he had preached to them, and we'll see because they don't, they don't believe, they think Paul's apostleship, you see all throughout Corinthians, they, they, they doubt a bit of Paul's uh, apostleship. And we'll get into some of the reasons that at least Paul seems to lay out. Um, but, but what he's saying is, even if 
you think that of me. What I preached is what they preached. So if you don't believe what I'm telling you, you're not believing in any of the other apostles. You know, you're not believing any of this. You know, so whether, you know, you don't believe because, you know, you see me as irrelevant. If you take all the other apostles, they're saying the same thing. And so, you know, ultimately all of that breaks down. Um, five through seven. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep, obviously died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Cephas is another name for Peter. So he, he, we don't have any uh, record in the Gospels that uh, Christ saw Peter first, uh, but Paul says it, and so that's how it happened. It doesn't disprove any of the other uh, 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 narratives. It, it just didn't include that. Remember, the Gospels are a synopsis. They don't tell us everything. That happened. Um, so Paul says that he ha uh, he appeared to him first. He appeared to him first. <laughs> then by the twelve, after that he was. This is where we. Uh, I was referring to over five hundred people he showed himself to. Okay, uh, this is real history. Okay, a lot of people can think. See, this is where. But a lot of people will think. Uh, you know that uh, maybe it was just a huge uh, hallucination, and that happens. You can even have a group of people. Have, it, have a common hallucination, especially if they're on certain drugs. But you can, that can still happen. However, over 500 people, that typically doesn't happen. Even if it's one time, okay, if it's one time, let's just say one time, one time. He showed himself over, over 500 people at one time. They all had this common hallucination. Is it outlandish? Is it crazy to assume? Yes. However, that's not what he's saying. He says that he showed himself alive many different times to many different people, in many different ways. That kind of hallucina uh, that, uh, hallucination doesn't happen. Okay, that's just not. This is real history. I know it's 2,000 years ago, but it doesn't make it any less real. Okay. The testimony of, take any historical figure, Socrates, uh, Napoleon, uh, uh, Caesar. Caesar, uh, we, ba we base these men's existence on historical narratives, and especially what other people are telling them. Saying about him, we have I have uh, Josephus, Josephus's ancient writings. He was a Jew in the early first uh, century, and he refers to Jesus. He refers to John. He talks about all of this stuff that we have in the Bible. Uh, but he's and he's not even a Christian, but he's giving us the historical. So to attest, basically, that's one of the ways we can attest to this real history. We've got to remember this is not some myth or fable. We, are, we do not declare what we have conjured up ourselves or cleverly devised myths or fables. But we, what we declare to you is that what we have witnessed, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, the majesty of Christ. Okay. Um, so, he's see, uh, Peter, season first. Oh, real quickly, go back, because uh, I think it's funny. Because uh, remember what I was saying is, you know, we don't have any record, basically, that he saw Cephas. You know, he showed himself to Cephas first, or Peter. Uh, there, was an, there was an old expression. I haven't heard it lately, but I remember hearing it. It goes, and I think they made bummer stickers. I don't remember. But it says, uh, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. What's wrong with that statement? You know, I talked to you about it. See, here we go. <laughs> What's wrong with that statement? No. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. It's that middle sentence. It's utterly irrelevant. If the Bible says it, that settles it. Whether or not I believe it doesn't make it more or less true. Okay? And so, Paul says it. Therefore, it's 
uh, that's what happened. And again, it doesn't make it inconsistent with the other ones. Um, and what he's, what he's doing too, especially with the 500, remember, the apologetics is necessary for the church too. So he's giving what they know, and, and they're living at this time, and he's telling them, no, if there's no resurrection, I mean, it seems like there's quite a resurrection. <laughs> We've got the testimony of all these people, some of whom have died, but many are, who are still around. Okay, then he t uh, showed himself to James. James was Christ's half-brother. Uh, he had a, a few. Jude is another one. Simon was another one. None of them believed, we've talked about this, during his earthly ministry. They came to believe after his resurrection, which would be pretty convincing. He shows himself to James. I can't imagine what kind of experience that, was, that would be like. Can you imagine? Uh, you know, some, some, Jay goes through some terrible death, and then... You know, he's been claiming to be the savior of the world this whole time, and you're thinking he's crazy. And then he he dies this terrible atoning death, which seems to be an atoning death. And then he rises again, and he, he appears to you as the Lord of glory, as the Lord of heaven, who came from heaven. I mean, that'd be difficult to, to grapple with. James grew up with Jesus. He probably worked in the carpenter shop with Joseph, his father. And he, and he ate with Jesus. And he just, he you know... There was nothing marvelous about the appearance of Jesus. Isaiah talks about uh, there was no comeliness about him. He was, he was meek. He was simple. He, he doesn't stand out in a crowd. You, you know, if, you were, if you were in a 100,000 people person stadium, you wouldn't know that's the Lord of all heaven and earth. He just looks like everybody else. There, was, there wasn't anything uh, magnificent so to speak. So there was no reason to believe. James re ends up writing, and James actually ends up really being the greater leader of the Jerusalem church, which we'll see, because he presides over the first ecumenical council of the church. It's just a, it, so the church in Jerusalem has to meet, uh, has to have a council to uh, make some decisions. You know, there's a, a heresy coming up, and they got to figure stuff out. James actually presides over it. Not Peter, not Paul, James, who's not even an apostle. Um, he becomes a great man. He, he, they, uh, they, they name him, oh gosh, I'm, I'm doing it aside. And I, I, okay, real quickly. Uh, they name him uh, James the Just, or it can be translated James the Righteous. He had such a fidelity to not only the Word of God, but living godly. He's the one who, uh, who, who we find it difficult to uh, synthesize with uh, uh, Paul's teaching of being saved only by faith. You know, you're, you can't be saved by your works. You're only saved by faith. Remember sola fide. Remember that? Um, and James comes along, remember, and he says, you know, you show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And he also says, faith without works is dead. And what he's saying there is, it's not the works that'll save you, but a faith without exercising itself in Christ is not is not faith. That's a dead faith. Faith is meant to live. It's a living faith. Remember, uh, vive fide, a living faith. That's the true faith. And that's what James taught. He all, they, last one, but they also said that he had knees like a camel. And I don't know if you've ever seen a camel's knees before, but they're hard and they're like leather because he was always on his knees. He was a devout warrior in prayer to Christ and for his church. I love James. I love the book of James. It's one of the only uh, um, books in the New Testament that many people refer to as wisdom literature. 
Uh, he's got these short kind of pithy statements that, that he never quotes Christ. He's one of the only epistles in the New Testament that doesn't quote Christ. But much of what he says, and it's so fascinating because you think about him being the brother of Jesus, is so fascinating. Much of what he says is like a parallelism. You're James. It's like a parallelism of, uh, of what Jesus taught. It's, it's beautiful. And, you know, again, they probably, you know, came under the same teaching from their father and all this kind of, it's just cool. Uh, I just find it fascinating. All right. That one took a lot longer than I wanted. I'm sorry. Verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. This self-deprecation that Paul's given uh, to uh, um, the Corinthians prob- probably alludes to, we'll see in uh, the first or the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, verse 1, and says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of, or, or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Back then, uh, a person's rhetorical skills, so their oratory skills, their ability to speak, their ability to speak eloquently and well and all that kind of a thing was a big deal. It was a big deal. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, ever heard of Cicero, but he used to chew on these little stones to, to get himself to, be, to exercise his jaw so that he could be more articulate, so he could speak better. Rhetoric back then was a huge deal. Augustine started teaching rhetoric in, in Milan. Okay, this is going inside again. So anyway... Uh, uh, so what he's saying though is that I didn't come to you with eloquence. I didn't come to you with some great uh, rhetorician. I didn't come to you with some great orator. I basically just gave you the message. You know, I'm not trying to dress it up. I don't need to dress it up. It's good news. Christ is risen. Hello. <laughs> what more do you need? Um, it appears throughout this uh, this epistle, like I said, that many of the Corinthians judged and attacked Paul. The Greek word for un, uh, untimely born, or as he says, as one born out of due time. Is really means something like a miscarriage, uh, okay? Uh, its etymology would render so ek is means out of or from or by or away from, and and tetroska uh, means to wound. So it's out of like a wound. Uh, is only used this once in the New Testament. Uh, we have other usages in the Septuagint. Remember that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, but and I have some of those, but we don't need to look at those. Uh, we might, but I have them if you want to check them out later. Uh, he might be implying that he did not undergo the natural gestation period like the other apostles who were part of Christ's ministry, saw his, his death, saw his, his resurrection, saw his ascension. Paul didn't have any of that, okay? So he's bo- he didn't go through that same gestation period. He's just born out of, out of an apostle who's born unlike anybody else. Any, unlike any of the other apostles, remember the chapter one in the book of Acts when, when, uh, when the apostles are choosing a replacement for Judas, the, the, the criteria is there. They had to be there since John, remember, since the preaching of John. So before even Christ's baptism and then all the way to his ascension, they would have had to, rec- the, to witness the resurrection and the ascension. Paul did not. Paul did not. He, he's the only one also who saw the risen Lord after his ascension. Well, who was called, Peter does, but uh, who was called after his ascension. He's the only one. Okay, so he's born out of due time. It's kind of a miscarriage. And he's, he's, he's really, he's de- being self-deprecating. He's, he's basically giving it to him. They're like, yeah, no, I, you're right. Yeah, it was totally, this is kind of weird. <laughs> it's kind of, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd have a hard time believing it kind of a thing, but this is what it is. Um, uh, um, 
Yeah, I already said. Okay, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So then he's taking another step. Not only was I born out of due time, not only did I not you know, witness all those things, but I was persecuting the church. When Christ called him, remember, he was on the way to Damascus to go arrest people for their persecution and likely death. He, he watched over. He approved of many believers' death at that time. He's on his way to Damascus to go arrest a bunch of people, probably including Ananias. Remember the guy who ends up uh, healing, you know. Uh, 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 but on his way to Damascus is when Christ, through that refulgent light, blinds him and calls him. So, but it's, it's while he's persecuting the church. And so he's saying, yeah, not only the other things that you mentioned, but I persecuted the church. I don't, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. He specifically says it. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. Uh, but then he goes on, because um, we see in the following passage. So, no, I don't meet the apostleships based on those standards. He's admitting that. We're going to see the, that those standards are not the standard. Uh, 10 and 11, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in, with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So the grace of God is a standard for this man's apostleship, okay? And, and that's the standard by which all men are what they are. Remember that, okay? God expends and, and God gives his grace to all men. All men, including unbelievers. Remember, he reigns on the just and the unjust. He provides for the, the wicked and the good. Okay, so he, he's great. The only thing that doesn't snatch any sinner out of life and into death is his grace, is his mercy. The only reason we're even alive right now is by his grace. Anyway, but he's saying the standard is uh, his grace. His grace has no measure, but it does have a standard, which is namely his will, what he decides. Uh, what, he, what he said to Moses was, uh, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's Exodus 33, 19. His grace is according to his will. Um, however, we see, okay, now I'm going to read this. However, God's grace was not in vain, nor is it ever. Insofar as Paul was the least in one respect, remember, because he wasn't the witness, he was greater with respect to labor. He worked diligently more than they did. In fact, he seemed to have traveled more than 10,000 miles on foot. Let me, I'm going to, hang on. I came across this. Let me just read this real quickly. Uh, this is somebody who kind of broke down, looked at, uh, um, all the miles necessary just of what we have in Acts. There are other expeditions that he alludes to that we don't even have. Uh, anyway, the distances traveled by the Apostle Paul are nothing short of staggering. In point of fact, the New Testament registers the equivalent of about 13,400 airline miles at the Great Apostle Journey. So that's over. That's linear. Uh, and if one takes into account the circuitous uh, Rhodes, uh, he necessarily had to employ at times the total distance traveled would exceed that figure by a sizable margin. Moreover, it appears that the New Testament does not document all of Paul's excursions. For example, there seems to have been an unchronicled visit to Corinth. He refers to shipwrecks of which we have no record, and there was his desire to tour Spain, though it is still debated whether or not he ever succeeded in that mission. Considering the means of transportation available in the Roman world, the average distance traveled in a day, the primitive paths and rugged, sometimes mountainous terrain over which he had to venture, the sheer, expenditure, uh, the sheer ex expenditure of the apostles' physical energy becomes unfathomable. For, unfathomable. 
Uh, many of those miles carried Paul through unsafe and hostile environs, largely controlled by bandits who eagerly awaited a prey. He says that in 2 Corinthians. Accordingly, Paul's commitment to the Lord entailed a spiritual vitality that was inextricably joined to a superlative level of physical stamina and fearless courage. So this man, you know, this man, as much as, again, these, these people are saying, you know, he does, he's, he's born out of due time. You know, he didn't expect, but man, this man labored. This man worked for Christ. God's grace for this man was not in vain. This man labored. His whole life was dedicated to to reaching the ends of the earth. Remember, he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and really goes all over the place. Okay. Um, Okay. Uh, Oh, also, so remember what we were just, we talked about before the uh, seeming contradiction between what Paul is saying and what James is saying. Paul is saying we're only saved by faith and James is saying faith without works is dead. Now we see the 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 that that contradiction is dispelled in this verse because he's saying his grace in him was not in vain he's working his faith okay so yes we are not saved by works but once we're saved it should drive us to works it should drive us to uh um to labor for him all right uh, verse 12 now if christ has preached that he has uh, been raised from the dead how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead so this is just a proof of substance through the apostles' preaching. Again, uh, if we are teaching you this, why aren't you believing? Uh, the apostolic authority should have been enough. The cause, so the cause is their unbelief. The effects are what follow. Okay, And what he's going to start doing, but because I have this later, but I want us to recognize this first at the outset. The, this system of argumentation is brilliant. It's called uh, reductio ad absurdum. So basically what you do is you take the premise of the person's uh, position, you take it for what it is, and you work it to its logical conclusion. Does that make sense? Uh, and that's what he's doing. So if there's no resurrection, here are the repercussions. Here's what that means. And he lays it out beautifully. Um, 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. That's one. That's one logical effect. Um, uh, so, well, notice for a moment, though, there's no sense perception necessary to receive this truth. This is as simple as it gets. You know, if, Christ, if there's no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. This begins a very logical flow, which cannot, it's utterly irrefutable. I, 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 I can't say that enough, especially as a believer. If I saw this as a non-believer, I, it'd be a hard time not to be convinced. As a believer... <laughs> it, 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 it grows in me just this incredible fire and light uh, it, it, it's just it's beautiful, it's coherent it's very logical it's just irrefutable and it's really beautiful 14 um, yeah. okay uh, and if Christ is not risen then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty here's another dreadful ex- effect uh, notice the continual linking though between their preaching and their faith. Remember, he's saying, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is empty. Um, the the word empty is the Greek same Greek word kenos used in verse eleven, translated vain. So you're, it's really a vanity. Uh, if God's grace is not vain, then our faith is not empty. Uh, James actually refer uses this word um, in chapter. 2 verse 20 but do you want to know O foolish man that work faith without works is dead 
I alluded to that before. Uh, and note, though, note what uh, Paul is doing here. He's correcting, remember, the apologetics, the necessary apologetics, even in the church. And what he's doing, and he does this throughout, he's taking what they assumed and taking their, 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 their uh, um, error and correcting it. At times, we get the greatest truth from correcting the greatest error. Without their not believing the resurrection, we don't have chapter 15. It's, it's incredible. What <laughs> Joseph says to his brothers, it's a long story, so I'm not going to get into that, but he says uh, to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. And he does that all the time. Man, he will take men's evil and he will turn into his goods. God's will will be done. So these men are believing, but again, without their disbelief, without their doubting, we don't have this. It's interesting. Verse 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God. Man, we're only at verse 15. Okay. Uh, that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise. In fact, the, in, if in fact the dead do not rise. Here's the implication of whatever they think about Paul. The reasoning, the reasoning means this. All of the apostles' labors are in vain. And what he's saying, though, uh, is that they would be false witnesses. Now, false witnesses would be one thing. Back then, remember, you needed the testimony of two men, but, but a false witness would be stoned to death immediately. If he was proven to be a false witness, a, a witness is somebody you go into a court. A witness is somebody who, again, it, it, who testifies either against or for um, a person who is on trial. Okay, And that's one thing. And that person would be stoned to death. These are ambassadors. So think of a king sending out one of his ambassadors. An ambassador speaks for the king. Right? And that's what the apostles are doing. And they're only speaking what they know from him. They are given authority to speak just like he did. Okay? Back in those days, if you, so if, if a, a king sent his ambassador somewhere and that ambassador just came up with something completely different, that man suffers a terrible death. So they're not even just saying we were found to be false witnesses, we were found to be false ambassadors. I, I, I can't emphasize enough um, the, the, the degree to which that would mean uh, in that time. Okay, 16 and 17. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and, still, and you, are, you are still in your sins. We, he kind of alluded to this before. So without the Christ's resurrection, the crucifixion is no atonement. The, the atonement of Christ is shown in his resurrection, is completed in his resurrection. And then even more completed in his, his ascension. But without his resurrection, there is no atonement. Okay, The cross has no effect without his resurrection. If he was not delivered out of death, no one else is either. It's essential we recognize that. God did not make a plan B. He made one glorious and perfect plan. Christ is the way, the only way. No man comes to the Father except through me. Remember? Well, obviously him, but I'm quoting him. Okay, uh, 18 and 19. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all we are of all men most pitiable. We'll see the the logical flow uh, that that comes from this too. If we remain in our sins in death, then we perish just the same. Um, the 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 Greek word for uh, uh, pitiable can also mean miserable. 
if in life we believe in vain, we have wasted our days just the same. Our hope in Christ has no power to raise him. His resurrection is the power of our hope. Verse 20, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here again is another set of logical, so now he starts another logical flow. He's, he's concluding the last one and he's starting another one. And this is the link. He's concluding the, the first one. So this is the conclusion of it, but it's also the introduction of another one. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so it's a link. Now, that he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I forgot to do this in chapter two in the book of Acts. Now I have an opportunity. The day of Pentecost was the harvest of first fruits. So you would take the first fruits of your, the greatest part, portion of your uh, of your harvest, so to speak, and and you would take it to Jerusalem on the feast of uh, uh, of first fruits, and you would offer it to God. Okay, and and the day of Pentecost. Remember, that's when the Spirit came, and the first sermon of Peter was on the day of Pentecost for Christ to reap his first fruits. Okay, that was the first time. Um, okay, verse 21 and 22. For since by death, or I'm sorry, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We'll see, Paul does, Paul links Christ and Adam, the second, or Adam and Christ, who is the second Adam or the last Adam, many, to, well, through here, he does it in Romans. Uh, he does it a little bit in 2 Corinthians. But this, this is what he does. And we'll see what, the, what he's uh, tying into. So Christ is the new Adam. Uh, through the first Adam came death. And through the last Adam comes life. Verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After, uh, afterward, those who are uh, Christ at his coming. Christ is risen to raise us. Remember, I've been emphasizing that i've been t so he christ is the first fruits afterward those who are christ at his coming when he comes again we he is risen to raise those who are his uh christ resurrection christ resurrection by the way is essential doctrine which is obvious here it's not subjective for the christian is this is this is not a secondary uh doctrinal issue which we can debate sometimes like infant baptism it doesn't it's not categorized in the bible as being a sin so that's something we can discuss catholics do uh, infant baptism i see no problem with infant baptism that's a secondary doctrine this is the primary doctrine this if you don't believe you're not a christian it's as simple as that you you can you can decide you don't like it then you're not a christian whether you whether you call yourself that or not a Christian is defined by Christ and who he is and what he did and what he said. Anything apart from that, you can call yourself whatever you want. You can call yourself a bogaliboo. That doesn't, it doesn't make you a Christian. I don't care what you call yourself. Uh, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. This can be a passage uh, fairly difficult to interpret. So let's, let's take a minute to talk about this. Um, it's, and we, we have another one coming up too. Some of this is kind of hard. Uh, but Paul is really talking about the culmination uh, at that day, right? Uh, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So he's given all authority to Christ, right? He's, he's put all things under his feet. Now, what he's saying, though, is that culmination, it, when, when our last enemy death, and we'll, we'll see, but our, when a, our, our last enemy death is destroyed, then it's, he says, that, that Christ restores the kingdom and gives the kingdom back to his father. Now, look, see, this is why I want more time. God is one, okay? Christ, Christ is begotten of the father 
to be our Messiah. And his messianic work on that at that time, when death is destroyed and all principality and all authority is destroyed, he, he, then what happens is there, the, God's ultimate authority is universally recognized. So they are, because we see a distinction right now, right, between God the Father and God the Son, one of which is their works, right, what, they're, what, what, what they do, right? What Christ was, what did was he, Father sent him to be the Messiah. Once he's completed his messianic work, he gives, he returns it to the Father. And, and then they're all one. They're all authority. They're all the authority, which we'll see here in a second. It's a difficult one to do without more time. Uh, verse 25 and verse 26. Uh, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Verse 25 uh, actually leads into verse 27. So the, verse, uh, the first sentence, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, goes into uh, verse 27. So we'll look at that here in a second. But, the, but it comes from... Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, which reads, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Um, And and verse 4 of that psalm goes on to say, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek uh, was the only king who also was a high priest. It was the time of Abraham. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. But but Christ, remember, he's the fulfillment of all those three offices of of, uh, prophet, king, and priest. Okay? And ultimately, when all of that is culminated, when all of that is at its uh, culmination, at its ultimate, there's no need for him to be our priest or our king or our uh, God. As the Trinity will be our king, will be our priest, will be our prophet, you know, but we don't, we won't need that even. The king, the kingdom will be established at that time. We'll see. The kingdom is less of a a tyrannical rule. It's more of a family. So the priestly duties aren't necessary. There's no uh, necessity for Christ to continue interceding for us at the culmination of all things. He's, there's also no reason he would have to prophesy for us to us because again we will know just as we're fully known, or just as fully as we are known. Okay. His king. His kingdom, though, lasts forever as we'll see, but that reign is different. So what he's doing is returning that to what it originally was in the very beginning. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that uh, he who put all things under him is accepted. What he's saying is God the Father is obviously not under Christ, and that's all I said. That's all we're doing on that one. Uh, 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son of himself uh, will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. So that Christ will be subject to his Father merely, again, continues his messianic work. This, this doesn't mean that his, his, his integrity is less than the Father's, okay? It's just his messianic work, his purpose in that respect uh, is, made sub- is naturally made subject to them. The climax uh, then comes in this complete destruction of enemies when God's absolute rule, again, is universally acknowledged. All right, verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, then why are they baptized for the dead? Okay, this one can be really difficult. I actually had to read a bunch of different commentaries to kind of make sense of this. So let me just try to put this simply. Um, Apparently, 
in the early church, uh, when, when, when men would come to faith and they were close to death, uh, and so they had really no purpose, they would get baptized again, really as a sign for the believers, for, for kind of the edification of the believers, being baptized for the dead. They have no purpose, you know, they, they're not, they have no, uh, no ability to labor, no, so they're dead in that respect, but they're still believing, they're still believers, so they're baptized for the dead. That's, it's a terrible way of explaining it, but it's just, you know, uh, it, it's not technically all that important. What he's, again, this is what, this is why I said, you know, we're just going to glimpse certain parts of these. Um, uh, but that's basically what he's saying. If they're baptized for the dead, you know, uh, and, and uh, the, the dead do not rise, why are they doing it? And he's not going against this, so it can't be one of the heresies of the early church. And we'll look at that some other time. That would take a while. Uh, 30 and 31. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Here Paul continues with the effects of vanity, which comes from this erroneous premise. In other words, why should we face death by persecution if there is no resurrection? Uh, in first Corinthians, So in this same... Uh, um, no, it can't be there got to be in another one but it's but he says uh this uh, uh magnan magnanimity of the of soul i say in despising death would be ascribed to rashness rather than firmness if the saints perish to death for it is a diabolical madness to purchase by death an immortal frame, uh, fame in other words it goes back to that love chapter you know why would you give yourself to be burned uh if without love and that's what he's saying to purchase by death an immortal fame that's what they're you know it'd be a diabolic and but that's what he's saying you know it, it, he's he's always close to death he's oh you know he dies daily and why would he do that you know it's diabolical madness to purchase by death and immortal immortal fame just for fame basically um and in like manner to verse 29 so paul figuratively dies daily uh, he means that he faces death every day, uh, possibly alluding to Psalm 44, 22, which says, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. Uh, uh, we are uh, counted as sheep for the slaughter. He mentions some of his dangers in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 28. And let me just quickly read these. Uh, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. And labors more abundant and stripes above measures. Uh, in prisons more frequently and deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was uh, beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a day and a night I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, uh, uh, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So he's just listing out. A bunch of the stuff he had to deal with. Uh, his dying daily should attest to his sincerity. Uh, he's not some prattling philosopher from the, out of the shadows. Uh, his closeness to death should have given greater heed to his uh, validity. Um, oh, we also have to recognize this, this verse actually is an oath. It's a type of ancient oath. Um, back in the day, though, it is a different kind of oath, but back in the day to... Uh, to solidify a, a, an oath, you would have to sacrifice something, okay? And so what he's saying is, uh, basically, he's, he's, he's uh, verifying and validating this oath basically through his own death. Uh, 
That's what he's saying. Okay, and and it's a different kind, and we can get into that some other time. See, gotta breeze through. All right, verse thirty-two. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage was it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Uh, this letter was written in Ephesus. We don't really know specifically of what he's talking about as far as, far as fighting beasts. We have some accounts with him in Ephesus, but his his persecution there, at least in what the accounts that we have isn't even close to some of the exper other experiences that he has. So it's probably just something we don't uh, have. Um, but uh, um, uh, again, though, uh, he's, he's still emphasizing the vanity of their disbelief in this life. Uh, uh, okay, one thing I wanted to say. Uh, the men who fight with beasts for hope only in this world, so like ancient Olympians, because that's kind of what, who he's referring to, uh, gain their world in this... Basically, back in the day, there were two different kind of uh, um, uh, people who would fight beasts, right? Some who were just thrown into the arena to be devoured. Others, though, they would give weapons and, and a chance to, to, to gain the victory. So, you know, if you were agile enough, if you, were, if you had enough endurance and enough uh, ability to defeat uh, a beast, then that's, that's fine, at least for the first beast, but... Next thing you know, once you beat the first one, they're sending on a second one. And that, that's only stopped once the crowd is satiated, they're, they're satisfied, uh, or um, they, they come to pity him and say, okay, that's, that's enough. Uh, there, were, there would actually also be people who dedicated themselves to this. These are usually prisoners or slaves that they're usually doing this to, but men would voluntarily do this. They would be trained like gladiators uh, to fight these beasts. And they had the same thing, though. You know, they would fight these beasts and kill one, and another one comes in until the crowd says yay or nay or whatever. Can you imagine dedicating yourself to some... What a terrible tragedy. What a vain uh, thing. They, were, they actually hired themselves out for that. So before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. That's from Proverbs eighteen twelve. I just thought that kind of captured that well. Uh, the quote Paul gives in his, is in his Isaiah attributing the, uh, to pagans, but the Epicureans said the same. So this, uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Epicurus was kind of a he, the hedonist of his time. So hedonism is really uh, living for pleasure, just living for pleasure. Anything that will give you pleasure. Life is all about pleasure. Okay. Uh, but Epicurus was, he had denied a divine intervention. Uh, basically, as he mentioned in verse 19, if our, hope is, if our hope in Christ is vain and this brief moment upon the earth is all there is, there's no reason then uh, to seek after nothing but pleasure and utter disregard to fellow man. If indeed life is, okay, so if indeed, like we looked at Hamlet, if life is but a walking shadow, a poor player who frets and struts his uh, hour upon the stage and is heard no more, if it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing, and it's just meaningless. Let's let's eat all there is. Let's get drunk as we can, because tomorrow we die. If it's all meaningless, then either that or kill ourselves. It doesn't matter. What's why is one greater than the other? You know, if everything is meaningless, just screw it. You know, sorry, forget it. Let's just do it. All right, thirty-three. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. This. Quote comes from an old ancient comedy writer, uh, uh, Menander. Uh, he, incidentally, this is kind of interesting. He was a pupil of Theophratus, who was a follower of Aristotle. 
who we'll see. I just think it's kind of interesting because we've spoken of him. Uh, however, excuse me, this was probably a well-known saying in Paul's time. So again, he's not. This isn't in the Bible. I mean, other than his quoting it, but uh, this this is not a verse from the Bible. He is taking what these people know, and he's using it to illustrate his point. Remember. Okay. Uh, awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some uh, do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This is probably attributed to the arrogance we saw, remember, in chapter 12 and 13, the love series. Um, the wake up, so the Greek word for awake is eknepho, uh, essentially means to return to soberness of, of mind. Okay, so a, a lot of other translations will be, you know, wake up from your drunken stupor, uh, that kind of a thing. Because uh, pride is intoxicating, and those who drink from her are, are drunk in darkness. Uh, the some um, do not have the knowledge of God. This is why I think the previous phrase alludes to their arrogance. Uh, people who don't know, know God are at times they whom God, uh, whom people elevate as if they did. So these people who don't know God, especially within the church, aren't afraid to go past and beyond the Bible and say all these ridiculous things that have nothing to do with the Bible. Okay, the 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 man who's uh, who's arrogant and who truly doesn't know Christ will go well past the Bible. Uh, and Paul is admonishing them who will go past beyond what they're teaching and those who will hear them. You know, it goes on both ways. You know, the the man who preaches falsely is condemned. Read James chapter 3, you want to know why I've been so hesitant to teach or to preach? James chapter 3, it's a fearful thing. Uh, but they will be judged. But so too will the people who chose knowing truth to hear them. Okay, does that make sense? Mm. All right, 35 and 36. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Okay, so I... I, I believe, I surmise, it's just conjecture, that this comes from, the, uh, remember what we had talked about, that dualism, that immaterial is good and the material is evil, I think that's what he's addressing here. Uh, this group uh, would not have believed in the resurrection as their souls are eternal and heaven is merely our, our separation from the physical. Um, what Paul is saying one, is one cannot be made alive unless one dies. If the soul does not, if the soul does not, not die, neither shall it live. Uh, okay. All right. 37. We're going to try to kind of breeze through these now. I mean, not breeze through them, but, you know, been taking too many side roads. Uh, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some, uh, other grain. Paul makes use of this allegory in two respects. It, it, it should not be surprising the bodies or that, that, that we're raised from the dead. We see this all the time. We put a seed into the ground. It's got to die. And then comes the crop. But that body, what comes out of that crop is according to that seed. Okay. This goes into potentiality and actuality. So the seed, especially Christ plants, it's potentially at this time, you know, so when we're in the grave, when we're, when we're in the grave, we are potentially a flower for him or whatever kind of crop, whatever you want to say. We'll see later. He alludes to kind of a flower. So we'll, we'll say a flower. Okay. But we're not actually that flower until that day, until we were raised in him. Okay. And, but, but that's, but the seed becomes a prop. So it's the same thing. The seed is potentially, let's say an acorn. An acorn is potentially an oak tree. It can't become an elephant. It can't become a giraffe. It's only potentiality is an oak tree. 
once it's an oak tree, it has received actuality. That's why potentiality is nothing. You know, it, it essentially, it's nothing. Uh, but we'll, we'll look at that some other time anyway. Uh, 38. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So continuing from verse 37, the seed becomes the body given by God, and therefore the, great, the greatness of the, uh, of the quantity of, uh, of bodies, so the greatness of how many bodies will be raised, is of less importance here compared to their quality. What he's talking about is the quality of the, bo- of the bodies, the difference of the quality of our body now and the body that shall be. Okay? Uh, 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. The substance is the same, but the quality is different. So, Calvin says, the sum is this, that whatever diversity we see in any particular kind is a sort of prelude of the resurrection, because God clearly shows there is no difficult thing with him to renew our bodies by changing the present condition of things. So, what, what he's saying, what Paul is saying, though, is that not all flesh is the same flesh. Again, the, the, so our identities will remain. So when you are raised up, you remain you just in a different body, okay? In a glorified body, in an incorruptible body, in an incorruptible heart, and all of that. Uh, and he says, all flesh is not the same flesh. Let's remember that because I'm going to kind of use that in these next uh, few verses. 40. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is, an, is another. He's describing the difference between our current state of body and that which will be glorified, basically. It's, it's, it, it's comparing to degrees to the glories of our resurrected bodies. So all bodies are not the same bodies. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another in glory. So there's a difference in glories of heavenly bodies as well. All glories are not the same glory. 42 and 43. So also is the resurrection of the day, dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So, uh, here, he, he, so here Paul is returning to his original analogy of the seed. Uh, remember the original the question or the what was posed originally was how will the dead uh, be raised and with what body shall they be raised and so he first points out that in the course of nature we see many things are not raised unless they die again just like the seed uh, he then points out that which uh, is sown is not the same as which that which is raised just like the seed um, Philippians 3 20 and 21 says for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may com- that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself our bodies now are subject to corruption dishonor and weakness they shall be changed to uh, incorruption glory and power 44. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. Remember when we were looking at the rebirth, that which is of the flesh is flesh. That which is of the spirit is spirit. Um, and so the spiritual body quickens the natural to spiritual. He'll go on to say, well, let's just go to it. Verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Uh, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So here's... Here's more of a distinction of actual substance. Uh, our being came by the quickening of the Spirit, the breath of God, right? Uh, uh, through Adam, that being is corrupted. Our, all of us, our souls, our spirits, our bodies are corrupted. Uh, 
uh, our being now is given et eternal life through the last Adam. This is more just, again, I already said that. The being, though, remains. The quality of being, however, is raised to glory. So the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the body, he's the one who's giving the life. He is the, the, the life-giving spirit in and through our glorified body. Does that make sense? Um, which happens here a little bit. Remember, let's not forget about that. The, the kingdom of life in its fullness will be on that day. But the kingdom of God starts when we receive Christ. The moment we receive him, the moment we believe, he, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. Okay? Um, let's see. And also, uh, so this is, again, the, the distinction in being. Uh, so Adam and us are beings of life. Christ is the author of life. Remember, Archipago, the author, the prince of life. Okay? And that's obviously far better. Um, let me... Uh, so, the, our, ours is a redemption of the body. This is important. Uh, this is a clear difference from other religions. The Hindu and the Buddhist believe that their liberation comes when their soul departs their bodies. Their bodies are that which taint us, and thus death is the ultimate salvation. There are many who think as such, and there are many people who are secularists who think this way. No, the Christian says that all of man is corrupted, his body, his soul, and his spirit, and all these must be changed. We see Christ retained his body after his death, and they still bear the, the scars of his crucifixion. However, his body was still changed. Remember, he was able to go through, he's able to just appear out of nowhere. He's able to do all these things that he wasn't originally able to do. For some reason or another, he's not immediately recognizable. I believe it's something more spectacular, something more glorified, something more uh, splendid. Um, all right, 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, and we're just going to have like one-liners for these. Uh, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. We will retain our identities, but not our nature. Whatever our natures are, they shall be given a spiritual nature. Not a spirit only but a body of his spirit. 47. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The first was made. The second was begotten, not made. It, this comes in the Nicene Creed. Uh, when we, So there came a, a new doctrine, well, a doctrine uh, basically referring to Christ as vera homo and vera deus. Altogether God, altogether man. He's holy God, he's holy man. And we could talk about that some other time, but he's, he was begotten. Christ was never made. He's existed throughout eternity in his Father. Okay. 48. As was the dust of man, so also are those who are made of the dust. Uh, as is, and as is the heavenly man, so also are, uh, are those who are heavenly. And so the nature of which comes from dust is made for heaven. That's all I have. 49. It's pretty simple. I mean, again, we, we, I'd love to break these down, but, you know... I, we will at other times. 49. And as we have borne the image of the, the man of dust, we shall also uh, bear the image of the heavenly man. And as the image which was given to man, which was in the likeness of his maker, he should be, he should be risen in the likeness of his savior. Okay, so it's ultimate. It's taking the one thing, which is cool, which was great. When he, when he gave us life, when he breathed life into Adam, what a beautiful thing. What a glorious thing. Oh, <laughs> then... Then he takes it to its fullness, and we shall be raised in eternal life through our Savior and in his likeness. Okay, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Here Paul is pl plainly pointing out that, which, uh, that, that we are not sown, but we are uh, 
fit to that state in which we must be corruptible. Here I find uh, an interesting point worth making, but I, I'm wondering if I uh, should make it now. Um, yeah, he, yeah, we'll do that another time. All right, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Here Paul leads to the final climax, namely when Christ returns. There, there, will, be believing, there will be believers in that day. So there will, there will be some who are uh, uh, asleep, which he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So there will, what he's talking about, the people who are dead are obviously sleeping. He calls them asleep because they're awakened and raised. Anyway, uh, but so at that time, and we're going to see here in a second, but at that time there will still be some people living that won't have to go through the death necessarily, but they will be transformed. Okay, uh, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. In instant, those who are dead shall be raised incorruptible, and those who are still living shall still be changed incorruptible. I mean, that's that, that's all he's saying, is is that even though that there will be people, because that's part of the problem that people are these people are having, in, in particular with the resurrection. Uh, what about the people who you know are there when you come again? And, all, and so he's answering. There's 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 a distinction, but there's no difference. Uh, Fifty three. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Here is something of a distinction without a difference. They are both corruptible and must put on incorruption and immortality. Fifty four. So when this, I'm sorry. This this man. I these last four five verses are among the great the greatest. And I mean, I'm just going to totally uh, forgive me, but this is going to be a gross uh, underserving of uh, what is going on here. But next time we'll do that. Okay, so death is swallowed up in victory. That's in Isaiah 25 and in, in, uh, verse 8. And I have the whole thing, but it, it, that's that verse. Uh, Revelation 20, 14, and 15 say, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is not merely an amplification of what Paul is saying. This is a confirmation as well. Uh, this happens now. Remember, I've been saying it until it uh, happens forever entirely. Okay. 55. Okay. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? This quote is often attributed to Shakespeare some, for some reason. I've read a lot of Shakespeare and never come across it. Because I used to think that he said it, and I haven't seen it. Uh, but the verse which comes before this I will, it says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And the one that comes after it, it say, says, pity is hidden from my eyes. So God has ransomed us from the grave and redeemed us from death by the immeasurable riches in Christ. God has prepared salvation, and anyone who hearkens not, their blood is on their own heads. Because that's what he's saying. He's saying, um, uh, where is it? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, Hades, where is your, or, I'm sorry, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? And up here, death is swallowed up in victory. And so he's just, you know, those who are not going to hear this, their blood is on their own hands. Interestingly, this, this, this version that he gives them is actually based on the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Remember the Greek translation. The, the original says something different, but it's, it's similar in kind. But, but again, he's using what they already have. You know, so he's not going into the trouble of saying, well, the original translation was this. And, you know, he, he uses what they, they know and still uh, exposits uh, properly. Um, all right. 
Uh, here is the salvation completed once death and the grave are completely removed. Then God's full victory at last is ours. All right, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So too, the plague of sin, so one of the translations of that was plague. So the plague of death is sin, and, and the law is its strength. The weapon of death is sin, is the moral plague of us all. It's, 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 the, it's the one, that's why it's undefeated, other than with Christ. He is the one enemy of us all. We have no power to defeat. 57. But thanks be to God who gives us vic the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the sting was put on Christ and he has become our strength. Christ has destroyed death and by his victory the same shall be ours. Lastly, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Interestingly, that, that let me read this. Uh, here he returns to labor not being in vain as in verse 10. Having shown through his be this beautiful, coherent, and logical layout, he encourages the believer to emulate his work. Steadfast means firm, immovable means persistent, abound to overflow and make abound. The w this word abounding is used of a flower going from bud to full bloom. You see what Paul's doing here? This last verse. Now, you know how I lament this breakdown of chapters and verses. It wasn't in the original text, and somehow, and sometimes they're really aggravating, as you've seen. This one's perfect. This is a full capitulation of what he's laying out for all this, and he ends it with this beautiful illustration going back to what he said, you know, about the seed. And now he's using a word that is used to talk about a flower, a beautiful flower, budding, you know from uh, coming full bloom. Paul is a shrewd writer and deliberate teacher. We are to be firm in our faith, grounded in Christ, and abounding and making abound to his glory. Be sure that though you be not saved by your labors, it is a true Christian who takes to the plow for his Savior with a heart full of all and thanksgiving until he come again, world without end. Okay, we're just going to shut it. Oh my God, how shall I praise thee? Oh dear Christ, with what words? But by thy grace let my heart speak of what by thee I've heard. Raise my heart to my mind and my mind to my voice. For in thee life we find and great cause to rejoice. The blood which was spilled on thy, thy way to the tomb, God's wrath which was filled upon thy divine wounds. The suffering anguish and the tears and thy cries, thy body laid vanquished, thy body had died. Below that great morning, when, when from the tomb thou wert gone, that thy earthly sojourning, is now risen in song. Lift thy voices, ye heavens, sing angels and men, for his life has been given, and death is its last end. Glory, glory, Christ is raised, his body now enthroned. He left the tomb, now we are saved, till he takes us to his home. Holy Father, King of all, thou hast made me for thyself. From naught but dust to that great fall, yet, son thy son, yet sent thy Son to raise myself. What body shall I have that day? I must tarry till I see. But this I know by thy only way, I must be raised in thee. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, I pray that this has pleased you. I pray that you take whatever was lost, whatever was confusing and distorted, and make it conform to your truth, that we may know you and our Savior. Show us yourself. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Any questions?